From the heart of our nation's capital, here's Family Research Council President Tony Perkins. Good afternoon and welcome to Washington Watch. My name is Joseph Backholm. I'm a senior fellow for Biblical Worldview and Strategic Engagement. It's my pleasure to be sitting in for Tony and with you today. Quick reminder at the top of the program, our country has seen record numbers of illegal border crossings under President Joe Biden's watch. The strain on our nation's infrastructure and communities is incalculable and nearing a breaking point. Americans of all backgrounds find themselves astonished at the failure of leadership in our federal government. To sign a petition to House leadership urging them to use all available leverage to stop the flow of illegal immigrants, drugs, human trafficking, and more across our nation's southern border, visit frcaction.org border or text the word border to 67742. Again, to join that effort, visit frcaction.org slash border or text border to 67742. Today on the program, a number of interesting conversations. The South Carolina legislature is considering legislation to prohibit genital mutilation of children who experience gender dysphoria. Now, 23 states have already passed legislation of this kind. Does that mean it's getting easier or harder to pass it in South Carolina? We'll talk about it coming up. In addition, Brad Wilcox has written an important new book where he argues that increasing marriage rates is key to saving our civilization. He'll join us a little later and tell us why. And finally, does Christian love demand that we allow anyone who wants to enter the country to do so? That's the conversation we're going to have with David Clawson from the Center for Biblical Worldview a little bit later in the program as well. But first, our headline. According to reports, this week, U.S. intelligence officers notified members of Congress and U.S. allies of Russian advancements in developing a new space-based nuclear weapon that could threaten America's extensive satellite network. Now, many in Washington find the timing of this report curious. It originally stemmed from a cryptic message from House Intelligence Committee Chairman Michael Turner, and now comes amidst a congressional battle for funding Ukraine military aid and amending the U.S.'s surveillance laws. But under any circumstances, we should be concerned about the possibility that Russia could launch nuclear weapons from space. What do we know about these space weaponization developments? Joining me now to discuss it is retired Army Lieutenant Colonel Robert McGinnis. He's a senior fellow for National Defense Family Research Council and author of Divided We Stand, The Globalist Scheme for a One World Government. Lieutenant Colonel McGinnis, welcome back to Washington Watch. It's my pleasure, Joseph. Thanks for having me. It's good to have you. Now, I want to start by getting your response to some comments that President Biden made earlier today. Let's go ahead and play clip one. First of all, there is no nuclear threat to the people of America or anywhere else in the world with what Russia is doing at the moment, number one. Number two, anything that they're doing and or they will do relates to satellites and space and damaging those satellites potentially. Number three, I, there is no evidence that they have made a decision to go forward with doing anything in space either. Lieutenant Colonel McGinnis, do you agree with that? Yeah, the, the Soviets or the Russians today, uh, of course, threaten us with their 6,500 nuclear weapons, whether or not they're in space or sitting next to the Kremlin in Moscow. Uh, the reality is that with long-range ballistic missiles, uh, you know, mated with uh, nuclear weapons, which they have in the thousands, that they could easily strike the United States if they had the proclivity. Really, the issue, Joseph, here is, um, you know, I don't know if it's about Ukraine, perhaps politically it is, uh, but I've written a number of books that address the specific use of space uh, by the Russians and the Chinese uh, to knock out our advantage. In other words, we depend upon the use of satellites to position our forces around the world. We do all our economic activities using satellites. And of course, even the, the television we watch comes from satellites. So it's important to understand 
and that we have all sorts of capabilities that depend upon outer space. And if you were to put a nuclear weapon in outer space, you know, targeting our satellites, uh, so be it. Uh, I don't know that's any more of a, a danger. However, uh, we, the United States, Chinese, and the Russians have all tested anti-satellite capabilities, and some are rather perfected. The Chinese have one that was put up in 2021 that was very effective, not only in you know doing away with you know satellite junk, but could also do away with our own communications ability. So that's a, a significant issue we need to take into account. So point of clarity, is it not an objective of these space-based weapons programs to launch from space to Earth? Is this just a, a way of potentially in warfare taking out satellite communications abilities all in space? Yeah, well, essentially the, the capability of taking out satellites, you know, really makes us deaf, you know, dumb and blind uh, here on Earth because we totally depend upon the, man the maneuvering of our forces at sea around the world using satellites, you know, much like our national command authority. And so if we don't have that, we don't have the communication and therefore uh, we're not terribly effective. Now, of course, we have GPS. You know, the Russians have their own system. The Chinese have created their own system of 30 satellites, and they're constantly putting up new ones. Uh, but using space has always been a challenge. And it would appear that with not only those three nations, but you have others now, like the Iranians just put up satellites, the North Koreans have put up satellites, uh, the Indians and others uh, are using space for their own purposes. And we need to recognize that this is a new future war you know, environment, one that we have to really be very careful about trying to you know, bring it into regulation and to dominate it if we can. Otherwise, uh, we make ourselves incredibly vulnerable. But the objective, again, is not to send a nuclear weapon potentially from space to New York City or a, a population center, but to do that in space. Is that, am I understanding yeah. that correctly? Uh, you could do that, but it, it doesn't make any real practical sense. You know, putting a nuclear weapon up in a satellite and launching it toward a, a city. You know, we we can do that essentially from anywhere on Earth today using hypersonics or just plain old uh, ballistic missiles. And so it doesn't make any logistical sense to do that. Um, now, we have nuclear reactors that power satellites, but to have a weapon up there. Now, the Russians have experimented with, with weapons in the past and in uh, Earth orbit. And of course, perhaps in time when we occupy the moon or Mars or elsewhere, uh, we'll have to have some sort of laser weapon, uh, which is, of course, uh, currently in development. So there are a host of things that are happening today, but I don't think that you know what we're talking about here is, is, is all that uh, earth-shaking. Uh, we're facing thousands and thousands of nuclear weapons here on Earth, much less, you know, putting them in space is not going to really you know, make it any more dangerous than they currently are. I think most Americans are under the impression that we have the military advantage in most senses. Does that translate to space as well? Do we have any kind of anti-ballistic weaponry that would allow us to counter a, an assault on our satellites in space? Likely not in the public domain. You know, those things that we're experimenting with, we don't talk about. You know, the Chinese have demonstrated an ability to shoot down satellites. Uh, we have as well. The Russians have. Uh, putting, you know, satellites or war-making devices in space, of course, would be contrary to international law. But, you know, the Russians and the Chinese haven't you know, demonstrate a proclivity to abide by the laws of uh, the international community. And so we do not have a ballistic system that is necessarily going to be effective here on the ground against satellite weapons as yet that, that, that I'm aware of. However, we do have anti-ballistic missile you know, systems to knock down other missiles coming our way. Yeah, but it, it's a, a matter of numbers. You know, if, if a thousand missiles came our way, we don't have that capacity. We have, you know, anti-ballistic missiles at Fort Greeley, Alaska, Vandenberg Air Force Base. Uh, we have those aboard Aegis ships. 
Uh, we have others, you know, certainly the Patriot, which you've seen demonstrated in the Middle East as well as in Ukraine. You know, we have those capabilities, but when you're talking about large numbers of incoming ballistic, perhaps nuclear-tipped warheads, you know, that's why you know, the Soviet Union fell years ago, because when uh, Ronald Reagan threatened to put up Star Wars and to shoot down everything they had coming at us, uh, they gave up because of the financial burden. I'm not sure that we're there yet, but uh, certainly the, the rising tempers around the world with Russia, China, North Korea, uh, Iran, and others, uh, we need to be on our toes, and we need, need to develop capabilities to uh, undermine uh, those that are enemies, and clearly Russia and China are our enemies, are developing. Of course, the concern that we're talking about here is Russia's ability to deploy these weapons in space. Uh, but on the topic of Russia, news broke today about the what appears to be an assassination of Alexei Navalny. He was Putin's primary opponent in the uh, Russian um, election in March of 2024. He's been in prison. Um, what's your response to that development in Russia? And are these related at all? Yeah, well, I, I think the uh, the assassination, uh, you know, was, he was a thorn in, in Putin's side. Uh, if you watch the Tucker Carlson interview uh, a week ago, you saw that Putin is a, is a pretty crafty guy, a former KGB Secret Service. Uh, I lived very close on the other side of the border from him during the Cold War in Europe. Um, he is not, a, um, not opposed to you know, taking out people that uh, oppose him. He's up for election for the fifth term as president uh, next month. And of course, Navaldi has been a, an opponent. Uh, he locked him up in jail after trying to poison him uh, a couple of years ago. And now, uh, if you believe the reports, he died mysteriously in a Arctic uh, colony, uh, basically a jail. Uh, at the ripe old age of 47. And it, even his lawyer the day before yesterday said that there was no indication he was having a health problem. So the international people that were uh, gathered in Munich uh, Security uh, Conference just today, to include Vice President Harris, all basically called out Putin as an assassin. Uh, you know, whether it's the Latvian, the Ukrainian, uh, the United Kingdom, all these leaders made a very pointed uh, statement about Vladimir Putin's culpability in doing away with this you know, political opponent, which, of course, uh, was in Putin's way toward his fifth term of, of, as the president. Yeah. And that certainly is his M.O. So a lot of people, even without conclusive evidence, I suspect that's true. But in about 20 seconds, uh, Putin said this week that he would prefer President Biden to another term of President Trump. What's your reaction to that? Not surprised. Uh, Putin went into Ukraine because of Biden's uh, debacle in Afghanistan. Uh, Biden refused to put up deterrence against uh, that invasion of Ukraine. And of course, Trump has proven to be a very hard customer to deal with, and Putin knows that. So you know, I'm not the least surprised. Uh, you know, Trump would be much tougher, both on Putin as well as the Europeans, and forcing them to, you know, really. Lieutenant Colonel McGinnis, I've got to cut you off. We are out of time. Okay. Thanks so much for being with us. Come back right after the break. We're going to go to South Carolina for some important updates. Stay with us. Christians must be sure to faithfully think about the issues that have taken our culture and many of our churches by storm from a biblical perspective. Family Research Council's David Clawson, along with co-authors Denny Burke and Colin Smothers, released a new book, Male and Female, He Created Them, a study on gender, sexuality, and marriage to help Christians better grasp the Bible's teaching about these issues. This study presents a biblical view of homosexuality, transgenderism, and marriage. With this new resource, readers will be given guidance on specific 
specific questions related to preferred pronouns, identity, intersex conditions, and other matters that our churches must be discipling their members to respond to with love and biblical conviction. As part of the study, readers have access to supplemental videos by Dr. Albert Moeller, Dr. Heath Lambert, Reverend H.B. Charles, Dr. Christopher Yuan, Dr. Rosaria Butterfield, and others that expand and elaborate the themes of each chapter. To purchase a copy, go to hecreatedthem.org. Today we find that global persecutions of Christians is growing more menacing every year. Family Research Council's Leela Gilbert, Ariel Del Turco, and Lieutenant General Jerry Boykin's book, Heroic Faith, shares personal stories from those who have endured religious persecution and gives a close look at the dire situations Christians often face due to dangerous and sometimes deadly opposition to their faith. The book's true stories of persistence and faithfulness amidst crisis offer inspiration and hope. Heroic Faith also provides insights into the ideologies driving the hostility and persecution, what steps the U.S. government might take to help, and how readers can best respond to the struggles of the faithful. It is critical for us to learn from our brothers and sisters who are suffering deeply and to do whatever we can to help. You can get your copy of Heroic Faith wherever books are sold or by going to frc.org slash heroic faith. Again, that's frc.org slash heroic faith. Men are constantly told that there is no place for their thoughts and concerns about abortion. However, this attitude ignores the fact that both women and men are deeply and personally affected by abortion. Furthermore, one does not have to be a woman to know that abortion ends the life of an innocent, unborn child. Every man has a role to play in protecting unborn lives and supporting the mothers in their families and greater community, which is why FRC's Center for Human Dignity has released a resource titled A Man's Guide to Standing for Life. This resource was created to help men positively address the topic of life. This guide will equip men with phrases to utilize or avoid, as well as practical tips for helping to protect life and the expectant mother or unborn child he knows. Every man has the opportunity to be an unborn baby's hero by stepping in to support a mother and speaking up for her child's life. Get this free guide at frc.org slash men to learn more about the important role men play in protecting unborn lives. Welcome back to Washington Watch. I'm Joseph Backholm sitting in for Tony today. South Carolina is poised to join nearly half of the states in America to protect minors from permanent physical harms of so-called gender-affirming care, which is actually gender mutilation as a way of treating a mental disorder. South Carolina's Help Not Harm bill is on the move. Joining me now to discuss the bill's progress is Mitch Prosser, interim president of the Palmetto Family Council in the great state of South Carolina. Mitch, welcome to Washington Watch. Joseph, so thank you so much for having me. So grateful for you and the ministry there at Family Research Council. Well, we are grateful for you. It's a great partnership that we have with our friends in the states all over the country for specifically purposes like this, so we can work together on really important legislation. And if you would, I know a lot of people have had these debates in their states, but just remind folks what this legislation does to protect children in South Carolina. Absolutely. Thank you for that question. I think one of the things that we here so often is this reframing of the narrative um, that it's restricting something or blocking something. Ultimately, what this bill and bills like it have done is to offer help to those who are struggling with gender dysphoria. Ultimately, we know that there are those that are struggling with a clinically diagnosable disorder, gender dysphoria, and many of them are only being told half of the story. Half of the story is that if they want to, they can undergo what is being called gender-affirming care. And as you so accurately pointed out, it really is genital mutilation. It is destroying who God made them to be as image bearers and representation of who he made us to be. And so what we're finding is many people don't even know there's another side. They don't even know that they're they're image bearers. They don't even know that they have the opportunity to learn who God made them to be and get the help they need. They desperately need in order to understand who God made them to be as image bearers of of him. And, and, And so as they struggle with gender dysphoria, they're only hearing you can take these pills. Or you can 
uh, get gender affirming care, or you can have a surgical procedure that will irreparably harm who God made you to be. Mitch, who do you find to be the greatest opponents of this effort to protect children in South Carolina? Well, there's no doubt that the LGBTQ uh, community has certainly come out against uh, this legislation. Um, In fact, uh, in one committee hearing, they had over 48 people sign up for testimony. Um, In the hearing that we just had in the Senate Medical Affairs Subcommittee uh, this past Wednesday, uh, they they organized their committee very well. They gave us, uh, those proponents of the bill, three expert witnesses, the opposition, those against the bill, three expert witnesses. And then they went uh, for and against, for and against, for and against. We noticed that uh, Women's Rights Empowerment Network, they showed up. Um, the LGBTQ community showed up. Um, and then many people who are not necessarily struggling with gender dysphoria, but their loved ones, their family members, their mothers and their fathers have shown up and voiced opposition for this legislation. Yeah. How is the medical establishment there responding to this? Because, you know, there's the personal stories and you've alluded to a lot of those. There's so much money involved in this. We find the uh, the professional associations as well as the hospitals organizing. What's their activity there on this bill in South Carolina. Joseph, you're absolutely right. Uh, there's a lot going on behind the scenes in the medical community. You know, one of the things that I've heard over the last few years is that uh, science is based on consensus. I, I, I don't know. I'm not a scientist, but uh, I don't know that's exactly how science or medicine are supposed to work. So what we hear is this organization or this licensing board is for this, or it's prescribed as the standard of care. And that's a dangerous place to be when we're relying on boards and a consortium of doctors to tell us what the standard of care should be. In fact, I learned this past week that the uh, American Medical Association, the AMA, has around 67,000 doctors. And that sounds huge. It sounds massive. But I learned that that's only 12% of the medical community, 12%. So if I'm doing my math right, that's about 88% of doctors who aren't part of the AMA who are saying maybe that shouldn't be the standard of care or empath or, or, or any of these other uh, boards. You're right. There's a lot going on behind the scenes in the medical community. And uh, just to be frank and honest, there's a lot of money to be made through pharmaceutical companies um, who are literally chemically castrating children and adults, for that matter, matter who are choosing to do so. But children need to be protected from the madness that is going on uh, all around them. Yeah. And what's interesting, you refer there to the AMA. Oftentimes, when those associations make these decisions, they don't do it because they pulled all of their members. There's some kind of executive committee that just makes a statement. And they say, we're speaking for all 67,000 of our members, but those 67,000 members had no input. And in fact, uh, it, it oftentimes, uh, you do a little research, we can discover that it represents a minority of their membership, not a majority of their membership. But everything is becoming political these days. Now, Mitch, in addition, Our friends around the country have been working on this issue for the last several years. So this is not the first time this has been debated. In fact, should this pass in South Carolina, as we expect it will, it would become the 24th state to pass similar legislation. Based on what you've seen in other states as this debate has progressed, is it becoming harder or easier to convince people about the need for this legislation? To be honest with you, I think it's becoming easier. And there are a couple components that go into that answer. First of all, what we're seeing out of Europe right now is is atrocious and alarming. Uh, and and I, I gave this analogy the other day. If you had an older brother who had already experienced many of the things that you will experience one day, would you learn from the mistakes that he made? And the answer is a wise person would absolutely do so. So the European medical community has been performing and and instituting these standards of care for far longer than America has. And so what they're finding is that they have done irreparable harm to thousands, thousands of European children across a broad spectrum of decades. 
So Americans are now learning about this, even though they aren't from America. And we left England a long time ago, which we heard this last week. Mitch, I want to cut you off and give you a couple seconds. Anybody in South Carolina who wants to help, how can they get involved in this in about five seconds? Absolutely. Palmettofamily.org. You can learn more about the Help Not Harm campaign there. Palmettofamily.org. Mitch Prosser, thanks so much for your time. Thank you. Coming up on the other side of the break, Brad Wilcox joins me to discuss his new book about marriage and how it could save civilization. We'll talk about it. Stay with us. Christians must be sure to faithfully think about the issues that have taken our culture and many of our churches by storm from a biblical perspective. Family Research Council's David Clawson, along with co-authors Denny Burke and Colin Smothers, released a new book, Male and Female, He Created Them, a study on gender, sexuality, and marriage to help Christians better grasp the Bible's teaching about these issues. This study presents a biblical view of homosexuality, transgenderism, and marriage. With this new resource, readers will be given guidance on specific questions related to preferred pronouns, identity, intersex conditions, and other matters that our churches must be discipling their members to respond to with love and biblical conviction. As part of the study, readers have access to supplemental videos by Dr. Albert Moeller, Dr. Heath Lambert, Reverend H.B. Charles, Dr. Christopher Yuan, Dr. Rosaria Butterfield, and others that expand and elaborate the themes of each chapter. To purchase a copy, go to hecreatedthem.org. Today we find that global persecutions of Christians is growing more menacing every year. Family Research Council's Leela Gilbert, Ariel Del Turco, and Lieutenant General Jerry Boykin's book, Heroic Faith, shares personal stories from those who have endured religious persecution and gives a close look at the dire situations Christians often face due to dangerous and sometimes deadly opposition to their faith. The book's true stories of persistence and faithfulness amidst crisis offer inspiration and hope. Heroic Faith also provides insights into the ideologies driving the hostility and persecution, what steps the U.S. government might take to help, and how readers can best respond to the struggles of the faithful. It is critical for us to learn from our brothers and sisters who are suffering deeply and to do whatever we can to help. You can get your copy of Heroic Faith wherever books are sold or by going to frc.org slash heroic faith. Again, that's frc.org slash heroic faith. Welcome back to Washington Watch. I'm Joseph Backlund, sitting in for Tony today. So glad that you are with us. Now, this week, many of us celebrated Valentine's Day. Now, of course, Valentine's Day has a long religious and cultural history, but this week's celebration of love comes at an interesting time for our culture. Because while everyone seems to be looking for love, it seems fewer people are looking for marriage. A study from the National Center for Family and Marriage Research from 2023 found that the overall marriage rate has plummeted nearly 60% since 1970. Why is this happening? What does it mean for the future? And is there something the church can help to do about it? Joining me now to discuss this is Brad Wilcox. He's the author of the newly released book, Get Married, Why Americans Must Defy the Elites, Forge Strong Families, and Save Civilization. He's a visiting scholar at the American Enterprise Institute and a sociologist and director of the National Marriage Project at the University of Virginia, and he joins me now. Brad, welcome back to Washington Watch. Thanks for having me, Joseph. First, tell us, what is the state of marriage in America today? Well, you know, there's bad news and there's good news to report. On the good news front, we've actually seen divorce come down since 1980. A lot of people think that one in two marriages will end in divorce. But the reality actually is that most marriages today go the distance. Um, And that's a good news because our kids are more likely to flourish when they're raised by their unmarried parents. We've actually seen an uptick in the share of kids who are uh, being raised by their own married parents. The bad news, though, Joseph, and it's kind of the flip side, is that because fewer and fewer Americans are getting married and having kids, more and more adults are what I call kind of bare branches. It's kind of a term from China that refers to adults without kin, without a spouse, and without children. There's kind of a closing of the American heart that we're seeing unfold that's marked by less dating, less marriage, and less childbearing as well. That's the bad news in America when it comes to marriage and family. What do you attribute that to? So I think there are a bunch of factors that are playing out here. One is that in the new economy, a lot of men who are not college educated 
are not thriving. And so they're not as marriageable. That's, I think, one issue. A second issue is that we're seeing, obviously, a more secular country. And because religious Americans tend to be uh, more marriage-oriented, more marriage-minded, that's, that's a big factor as well. Uh, we also have what's called, in my view, kind of like the Midas mindset playing out, where too many Americans are assuming that kind of the key to a good life is, you know, education. It's money. It's work above all things. And that marriage and family are not as important. We've seen this in a lot of pupils, for instance. So this kind of Midas mindset, I think, can lead people to kind of de-emphasize, not pursue, discount the importance of finding a spouse and getting married, staying married, and having kids. So these are some of the factors that are driving marriage rates in America down to close to record lows. An interesting part of the title of your book is that Americans must defy the elites Explain that a little bit, why you think defying the elites when it comes to marriage is uh, part of the solution. Yeah, you know, some of my critics, you know, take issue with that part of the subtitle. Well, the elites actually are tending to get married and stay married in higher numbers than most Americans. Actually, this is a point that I make both in the book myself and then also in The Atlantic this past week. So my point is not that our elites are not actually living oftentimes pretty marriage-minded lives. It's that they're not using their bully pulpits to kind of preach, if you will, the value of marriage and to use their positions to kind of advance the value of marriage, whether it's in the public schools, maybe as a school superintendent, or whether it's as a journalist, maybe writing for the New York Times, whether it's as a C-suite executive kind of planning out your marketing campaign or a Hollywood mogul kind of presiding over um, a network, uh, streaming network in this case, like Netflix. And I talk about Reed Hastings and Netflix in the book as kind of one example of a a guy who kind of talks left oftentimes and whose network kind of often promotes more of a progressive view on family issues, even in one case, the marriage story movie, a kind of a negative view about marriage, and yet in his own personal life has managed to forge a strong and stable marriage for him and his wife and their two kids for more than 30 years. So, you know, I think the challenge is to recognize that a lot of the cultural messaging we're getting from elites, like polyamory, for instance, isn't very helpful for ordinary couples um, for fostering strong civil marriages, and we've got to resist a lot of the kind of more me-first um, messaging we get oftentimes from a more elite culture. Yeah. yeah, and I want to understand that a little bit more because this the elite nature of marriage is becoming clear that the wealthier you are, the more likely you are to be married, married. but you, you refer to the Netflix example there of somebody who's uh, communicating messages, kind of this laissez-faire sexual ethic, but he lives in a very different way. Is that conscious that people are like, oh, I'm going to, you know, do what I know is good for me, but I'm going to fool everybody else? Why is that contradiction appearing? Yeah, it's a great question. I think it's more about um, oftentimes kind of conforming to certain social you know, mores in your, you know, set, your professional set, your social networks um, and taking cues from the leading cultural kind of um, influences in our culture. So it's, you know, just take polyamory, for instance, right now. You know, polyamory still doesn't have like a majority level of support, but it's certainly got a big kind of boost recently with uh, puff pieces in in the New York Times and New York uh, Magazine. And there's a new television show that's kind of rolling out on Peacock that's called I think, From Couple to Thruple or something like that. So kind of there clearly is an agenda there. Um, but I think for many folks, it's just kind of like you're just kind of conforming to what you kind of are reading in the New York Times or hearing about from you know, some media outlet or what you're coming across now on social media and you just kind of think this is the newest thing and I should just accept it and, and you know, embrace it. Um, but if you're smart and prudential as a person, as many elites are, you know, you're going to recognize, realize that the best thing for you and your spouse and your kids is to get married, stay married and live reasonably family-centered lives. And so that's what we often see with a lot of elites, that they're presiding over businesses or professions that aren't very marriage I need to, I, I want to cut you off because I want to hold you over the break because there's a lot more to say, but we're up against a break. And, and if you can, stay with it for a second. And uh, we'll be right back uh, continuing this conversation with Brad Wilcox. Stay with us. 
Christians must be sure to faithfully think about the issues that have taken our culture and many of our churches by storm from a biblical perspective. Family Research Council's David Clausen, along with co-authors Denny Burke and Colin Smothers, released a new book, Male and Female, He Created Them, a study on gender, sexuality, and marriage to help Christians better grasp the Bible's teaching about these issues. This study presents a biblical view of homosexuality, transgenderism, and marriage. With this new resource, readers will be given guidance on specific questions related to preferred pronouns, identity, intersex conditions, and other matters that our churches must be discipling their members to respond to with love and biblical conviction. As part of the study, readers have access to supplemental videos by Dr. Albert Moeller, Dr. Heath Lambert, Reverend H.B. Charles, Dr. Christopher Yuan, Dr. Rosaria Butterfield, and others that expand and elaborate the themes of each chapter. To purchase a copy, go to hecreatedthem.org. Today we find that global persecutions of Christians is growing more menacing every year. Family Research Council's Leela Gilbert, Ariel Del Turco, and Lieutenant General Jerry Boykin's book, Heroic Faith, shares personal stories from those who have endured religious persecution and gives a close look at the dire situations Christians often face due to dangerous and sometimes deadly opposition to their faith. The book's true stories of persistence and faithfulness amidst crisis offer inspiration and hope. Heroic Faith also provides insights into the ideologies driving the hostility and persecution, what steps the U.S. government might take to help, and how readers can best respond to the struggles of the faithful. It is critical for us to learn from our brothers and sisters who are suffering deeply and to do whatever we can to help. You can get your copy of Heroic Faith wherever books are sold or by going to frc.org slash heroic faith. Again, that's frc.org slash heroic faith. Men are constantly told that there is no place for their thoughts and concerns about abortion. However, this attitude ignores the fact that both women and men are deeply and personally affected by abortion. Furthermore, one does not have to be a woman to know that abortion ends the life of an innocent, unborn child. Every man has a role to play in protecting unborn lives and supporting the mothers in their families and greater community, which is why FRC's Center for Human Dignity has released a resource titled A Man's Guide to Standing for Life. This resource was created to help men positively address the topic of life. This guide will equip men with phrases to utilize or avoid, as well as practical tips for helping to protect life and the expectant mother or unborn child he knows. Every man has the opportunity to be an unborn baby's hero by stepping in to support a mother and speaking up for her child's life. Get this free guide at frc.org slash men to learn more about the important role men play in protecting unborn lives. Welcome back to Washington Watch. Joseph Backholm sitting in for Tony today. I'm continuing my discussion with Brad Wilcox, and Brad is the author of the newly released book, Get Married, Why Americans Must Defy the Elites, Forge Strong Families, and Save Civilization. He's a visiting scholar, the American Enterprise Institute, as well as a professor of sociology and the director of the National Marriage Project, the University of Virginia. Brad, thanks for sticking around. It's good to be with you, Joseph. Now, we were discussing kind of the current state of marriage in the country and the fact that, you know, marriage rates are down. Uh, marriage has become something of a privileged kind of elite institution. But I want you to tell us a bit more now about what happens. What's the impact of declining marriage rates both today and uh, into the future should those rates persist? Yeah, so I think about this in terms of Jefferson's phrase, and I, I, I'm here in Charlottesville, so this is appropriate, in terms of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. When it comes to life, for instance, we're seeing obviously falling fertility in part because there are fewer unions being formed. We're also seeing, though, on the other end, more and more deaths of despair. And there's a new study from Gallup showing that one of the biggest predictors of deaths of despair is less marriage across this country. When it comes to liberty, I think we're seeing... When it, for poor kids who are being raised in communities with many single-parent families, they're much less to realize the American dream. So that's certainly, I think, one of the factors uh, that we see when it comes to, to liberty. So not having strong families impedes the American dream. And then that final phrase, the pursuit of happiness from Jefferson's Declaration. More and more Americans are having difficulty realizing that pursuit. Um, and the number one factor there is declines in marriage. 
based upon a new study from the University of Chicago. So the point here simply is that sort of the falling fortunes of marriage really poses a fundamental threat to the fabric of our American civilization. Yeah. Do you see the declining marriage rates as a conscious choice that people are making, or is it simply a byproduct of cultural shifts that have caused, you know, people of marrying age to just make this different decisions because of a different value set? So I think it's both. I think in some, you know, minority of cases, people are kind of deliberately deciding to forego or postpone, you know, marriage. Um, but I think in many cases, people are just kind of focusing more on other things. You know, as I said before, things like education, work, money, or in some cases, having a good time. Um, or kind of just struggling to sort of forge good relationships, find, you know, a good partner. Um, that's certainly kind of a reoccurring theme that I hear from a lot of younger women, both in college circles that I spoke to, as well as in more working class circles in my interviews for the book. Although I think the problem is more pronounced in working class communities. I've seen some research lately about the worldviews of young men and young women as represented by their kind of partisan affiliation. And there's indications, both in America and around the globe, that young men are increasingly becoming very conservative and young women are increasingly becoming very progressive or liberal. Do you think that's a meaningful factor in this trend? I do, Joseph. I think it's a hugely important factor and it's going to grow. And I think this is about you know, how the internet is kind of putting people into their different ideological corners and um, you know, fostering a lot of progressive views among women and certain kinds of conservative views among young men. Now, again, most young adults are kind of in the middle, they're moderate, but just sort of the dynamics are pushing more men to the right and more women to the left. And on the right side, the concern that I have there is that they're gravitating in some cases to, to figures who are not marriage-minded, not family-friendly. People obviously like Andrew Tate, who thinks that it's basically a, you know, a stupid idea for men to invest in marriage today. So that's, that's where you know, this dynamic can be in, in, troubling. So what's the value set that young people, and you specifically refer to young men there, who might be following kind of personalities online who are discouraging them from making that commitment in marriage, what is the, uh, you know, it's the value system or the, the thinking pattern that needs to change in order for people to think differently about marriage and therefore just behave differently? So I talk in the book about kind of critics from the left kind of targeting women and then these online right figures targeting men. And they're in their own ways, they're kind of both saying marriage is kind of a bad deal for one case women, the other case men. And all that my book is saying, by contrast, is that there is no group of Americans, both male and female, who have more meaningful lives, less lonely lives, more prosperous lives and more happy lives um, than married Americans. And we see in particular is that married moms and married dads are doing especially well difficult it is, you know, to be a parent. Um, it is the case that on average, people find a lot of meaning and joy from um, being spouses and being parents. And we just need to do a better job of communicating, you know, this set of findings to the public and help them to understand how they can forge strong marriages and families. And my book is designed in part to give people some practical advice on that front too. That seems paradoxical because what you're telling us is that the evidence suggests Married people are, in fact, happier, and, and, and I agree with that, and I've read, done my own kind of amateur research, and that is what the sure. data suggests, yet the, um, the narrative persists that marriage is kind of the enemy of happiness, which is why a lot of people are not choosing happiness. How did those things come to be concurrently where the narrative is so uh, contrary to what a reality turns out to be? I think there are a couple of reasons, but one thing is that our culture tends to prioritize freedom. Our culture tends to minimize sacrifice and suffering. And our culture also has oftentimes a more short-term mindset. And of course, being a good spouse requires uh, sacrifice, requires compromise, it requires suffering, and it requires having more of a long-term perspective when it comes to sort of how you organize your life. And so people can do that well um, and kind of put their spouse and their kids uh, first in important ways, um, you know, living for the other, are more likely to be flourishing in their families and in their lives more generally. So we just have to continue to try to find creative ways to um, sort of form young adults 
to realize, to appreciate the kind of living in the moment, uh, living for one dopamine hit after another, taking for granted a lot of the um, anti-marriage messages that pop culture and only culture sends their way is not the way to do it. And I think it highlights a paradox of the gospel and something we know is true is that uh, we were not created to live for ourselves. And the more we try to live for our own pleasure, the more miserable we end up being, the more we end up living for the, the benefit and the goodness of other people, which is what marriage requires us to do. Paradoxically, it makes us happier as well. And I think we're seeing that. Brad, final question for you. What can the church be doing uh, to both incentivize marriage and just change the way the culture thinks about marriage? So one thing they can do, I think, is to work in partnership with some new organizations like Comunio and National Marriage Week that have you know, begun sponsoring any number of events and activities and classes and trainings to sort of help both churches and, and couples and families um, thrive more in their marriages and also kind of steer clear of difficulties and handle um, you know, major problems in, in a marriage as well, or in a family more generally. So kind of upping their game and when it comes to um, both family ministry in particular, and just kind of creating a more family-friendly context. But I think churches also have to be more intentional, too, about <clears throat> thinking through new ways to have young adults um, date, meet, um, do volunteering together, just to sort of foster um, a social context where young adults can um, meet one another and um, move on to uh, to date and marry. The book is Get Married, Why Americans Must Defy the Elites, Forge Strong Families, and Save Civilization. Get it wherever you get your books. Brad Wilcox, thanks so much for your time today. Thanks for being with me, Justin. Thank you. Final conversation today. The political debate over our ongoing border crisis continues as the Biden administration works to tear down barriers that make it Ill that make illegal passage into the country easier. Now, in Christian circles, this political debate has spawned a theological debate as well, where some appear to be arguing that allowing open borders is essentially a matter of Christian love. As Christians, we're commanded to love our neighbor. Is it loving to allow everyone to enter the country whenever they wish? And must we choose between honoring the Great Commission and respecting the rule of law? Joining me now for this worldview segment is David Clausen. He's the director of our Center for Biblical Worldview at Family Research Council. David, good to see you today. Great to be with you, Joseph. Now, first, let's just uh, not bury the lead in this conversation. Is it unloving to tell people who want to come into the country that they can't? No, Joseph, it's not unloving. Um, now, I think in this conversation as Christians, uh, we are the people who in this conversation can remind all of us uh, that all people are made in God's image and have inherent value and inherent dignity. And I think that's important to state. Uh, however, we can say more than that. And one of the things that we need to add is that uh, not everyone has the uh, freedom or biblical mandate to do whatever they want, whenever they want. Um, and I think the Bible gives us clear guidelines uh, that borders and nations and national sovereignty are good things. Uh, government, according to Romans 13, is ordained for the good of the citizens living in that country. And so, in short, Joseph, no, I don't think it's uh, unloving uh, to say that oh, Christians shouldn't support or shouldn't be in favor of an open border policy. Well, let's try to understand then why this debate is happening, because this debate is raging in Christian circles, on the Internet and other places. And this idea that, hey, these are people who are genuinely in need, and that is, of course, true in many cases. We know that bad actors can exploit uh, loopholes that might exist to do bad things, but nobody's suggesting that's the supermajority of people who want to come to the country. Um, if you think it's an easy answer that it's not unloving to say, no, you need to stay in your own country until you can come here illegally. Why do so many people find that to be a persuasive argument, persuasive enough that they're making that argument, that they're saying that we as Christians need to welcome the nations, right. it's a matter of hospitality, that if they want to come, we should allow that, otherwise we're being un unkind. Yeah, and I think the main theological argument, Joseph, that I'm seeing uh, made in this country, usually by those kind of on the left, is this argument of love of neighbor. And that's a right Christian impulse. Uh, you know, Jesus himself was asked, who is my neighbor? And in response, in Luke 10, he tells the story of the Good Samaritan and the kind of the, 
the result of that story is an awareness that all of us um, have an obligation to everyone else. Uh, in one sense, a Christian can legitimately say that everyone is our neighbor. And so that love of neighbor broadly, generally construed, I think, is what drives a lot of this language. But there's more in the Bible, Joseph. I'm thinking of 1 Timothy 5, 8, where we know uh, that we have, sure, there is some sort of love that we owe to anyone that comes across our path. But there's a first responsibility to those in our immediate circles, kind of the principle of subsidiarity. You know, 1 Timothy 5, 8 uh, is where Paul actually says that if anyone does not provide for his household, uh, he's worse than an unbeliever. And so I think that's why Christians have historically understood that uh, there are, again, the principle of subsidiarity, those who are closest to you, your family, then maybe your community, then your nation, there's maybe a greater degree of love um, that is owed. Uh, that's an interesting point, because, and I see parallels in the Ten Commandments, because we know the Ten Commandments is not just one commandment. Um, included in the Ten Commandments are thou shalt not kill, which is, of course, because these are image bearers, and you, don't go, you can't kill people because you, um, you want to, because you find them to be frustrating. Uh, you also are not allowed to steal, which is a recognition that other people have property. It's a, the foundation of property rights. They can own things. And that means by virtue of their ownership, they can deny you rights, access, privileges related to that property that you might desire. And in order to take that from somebody who has the ownership of that thing, that's called stealing. And God specifically commands us not to do that. Is it a uh, appropriate to analogize the prohibition against theft to nations, our homes like nations for a community of people where – there's this principle that says the people who own the home, who own the nation, they have the uh, legal authority to make rules that determine, among other things, egress and ingress, which means you might want to come in, but you can't. It's the same principle that we all will use at our homes tonight when we go to sleep. There are undoubtedly people within a radius of our homes who would like to sleep there if they knew that they uh, knew that it was an opportunity, but we lock our doors anyway to deny them uh, that desire. Is that a, a, a fair conclusion based on just what God tells us in the Ten Commandments? I think it is, Joseph. I think in the Ten Commandments and I think also Romans 13, the, the purpose of government. I kind of want to correct what I said a second ago, where I said there's a, a greater degree of love for different people. I think what I should have said is that I think that love manifests itself in different ways in different situations. Uh, yes, everyone's made in God's image, but Joseph, is it actually a true love of neighbor to say that you, we, we should be in favor of a system that incentivizes uh, illegal smuggling and human trafficking uh, that brings all sorts of um, depravities uh, on uh, people, uh, a system that incentivizes people putting their own families in uh, precarious situations, or again, the system that really creates a whole underclass uh, that operates uh, outside the reach of the law, so to speak. And so again, I think this concept of love of neighbor, uh, we need to have a more nuanced way of looking at it. Um, but I do think the analogy that you just gave, Joseph, is helpful and I just point people to the article you wrote that's on frc.org slash worldview, where I think you even kind of extrapolate that a little bit further. Yeah, and, and I think the argument for allowing people to come into the country just because they want to is honestly consistent with a lot of left-wing arguments in general, whether it's abortion or gender or, or the ability, you know, the decriminalization of all sorts of things, the idea that the desire is the justification that it's it's appropriate for you to do it because you want it and that's also at the at the heart of this now not denying real needs that exist we have to reject the principle that just because someone wants something means they should have it. Wherever they got that idea, it wasn't from Scripture. Uh, but we can continue to uh, tease all that out. David Glossen, thanks for your time for being with us. Thank today. you, Joseph. And thank you, friends, for being with us. Also, a quick reminder that uh, in my day job, I'm also hosting the podcast Outstanding. Welcome you to join us there. Tony will be in the chair on Monday. Look forward to seeing you next time on Washington Watch. Washington Watch with Tony Perkins is brought to you by Family Research Council and is entirely listener supported. Portions of the show discussing candidates are brought to you by Family Research Council Action. 
For more information on anything you've heard today or to find out how you can partner with us in our ongoing efforts to promote faith, family, and freedom, visit TonyPerkins.com. Also, to leave a comment about Washington Watch, call our watch line at 1-866-372-7234. That's 1-866-372-7234. 